to The Straight and Marrow, a show that discusses all things allogeneic bone marrow transplant, from pre-transplant considerations to survivorship, using experiences of healthcare providers, patients and carers with current evidence to keep it straight. We are Yvonne, Ming and Alex, nurse consultants and nurse practitioners who are here to keep discussions on The Straight and Marrow. Today, we are bringing you a discussion about the nuts and bolts of allogeneic bone marrow transplant and would like to welcome Dr. Ashwin Prabharan and Alex Rivelland. Ashwin Prabharan is a hematologist undergoing his fellowship in bone marrow transplantation at Royal Melbourne Hospital and Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. He is currently undertaking a PhD in investigating a complication of transplant called poor graft function. He is passionate about improving outcomes for patients who undergo allogeneic bone marrow transplant. Alex is one of our specialist nurses who also works on a bone marrow transplant ward. Welcome, Ashwin and Alex. Thanks for being our guests for The Straight and Marrow. We know that bone marrow transplant is never a straightforward procedure. And there is a lot of ground to cover in terms of when educating the patient and the carer. When you get a referral to see a patient for an allogeneic stem cell transplant, what are the most important things that you need to communicate with the patients and the carer during their first consultation? So that's a, that's a pretty big question. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of things to cover in the first meeting of a patient who's been referred to me. Generally, I start off with an introduction because... I am a haematologist, but patients often don't really understand why they're being referred to someone else apart from their treating haematologist. And I'm specifically a haematologist that's got a, a specialization in transplantation. And apart from the skill set that I bring, there's I also work in a center that's very experienced with bone marrow transplantation. And it's important that the patient realizes that that's the reason why they're coming to, to see me. I guess the second part of that is getting to know the patient. So understanding their social circumstances, who's around them to support them through the transplant, and importantly, working out whether they have any significant medical problems which may make the transplant unsafe. So it's a general health assessment and also a a kind of get to know you. Also from a personal level, the relationship between a patient and their transplanter is often over a, a large number of years, even lifelong. So it's important to understand, I guess, is the first meeting of potentially a very long relationship as well. Then I engage in discussion about why we do transplantation, why we do allogeneic um, stem cell transplantation. Just before I go on, I thought I'd just clarify a few terms, which I'll be using quite a lot in this discussion, just so I guess the audience is familiar with some of the language that we use. So when I talk about a donor, I'm really talking about the person who will be providing the stem cells. The recipient is the person who will be receiving them, so that's the patient. In terms of the term stem cells itself, this is the most basic cell type from which all blood is produced. And the bone marrow is the organ that is important for the production of a lot of the blood cells. So the reason why I just wanted to set that out from the the outgo is because it's uh, often I'll be using these terms and it's helpful to just kind of get an introduction as to what what we're talking about. 
at a nuts and bolts level, transplantation, allogeneic stem cell transplantation involves the transplanting of donor stem cells into a recipient or the, or the patient. And, and we do this mainly for the purpose of treating blood disorders. For that to be successful, there's a few things that need to occur. The new donor cells need space to grow and the recipient or the patient's immune system needs to be suppressed so it doesn't reject the new tissue. There's a couple of things that I discuss because this may be unfamiliar to the patients, but essentially to facilitate the space being created in the bone marrow and the immune system being rejected, we give patients chemotherapy prior to their transplantation and that's called conditioning chemotherapy and it's, it's really to condition the, the and prepare the body for the receipt of donor stem cells. As I said before, the purpose of this chemotherapy is to remove the patient's own bone marrow and it allows for the growth of stem cells. For a lot of blood cancers, and this is the main reason why we do transplantation, this chemotherapy may also help to reduce the total amount of cancer cells in the body. The side effect of which is essentially it will eradicate a lot of the patient's own normal blood producing stem cells and they won't return unless we successfully rescue them from a donor source. Apart from conditioning chemotherapy creating space for the stem cells, allowing, suppressing the recipient immunity to allow for the donor cells to grow. Probably the most important reason why we do transplantation is to facilitate something called the graft versus leukemia effect. This is relevant as many patients, especially adult patients, undergo allogeneic transplantation for the treatment of a blood cancer such as leukemia or lymphoma. To discuss the graft versus leukemia effect in a bit more detail, it would probably be easier for me to use acute myeloid leukemia, which is probably the most common reason why we perform adult allogeneic stem cell transplants as, a, as an example. So leukemia is, is really, it's a disease of stem cells. And in the case of leukemia, there's often a stem cell that's gone wrong that produces the leukemia, stems, uh, leukemia cells. Stem cells, they don't really replicate very often. And that means that they're very resistant to standard chemotherapy. And standard chemotherapy needs cells to be highly active and replicating to, to be most effective. So even with these high doses of chemotherapy and chemotherapy that's come beforehand, there is a chance that there may be some leukemic cells, stem cells still hanging around, which if left untreated may be a source of relapse of their leukemia later on. Clearly, we need another strategy other than chemotherapy to, to try and get rid of these stem cells. And, and this is where the graft versus leukemia effect uh, is most relevant. When we transplant donor stem cells into a patient, so those stem cells will produce a lot of components of blood, like red cells, which carry oxygen around the body, platelets, which help us clot when we bleed. And very importantly, they also produce white blood cells, which are relevant for us to protect us against infection. Another effect these white blood cells can have is they can recognise any residual leukaemia as a little bit different from themselves because they're not really produced by the recipient and they can work to potentially remove, control the leukaemia stem cells in the long term and prolong a patient's remission and, and hopefully cure them from the acute leukaemia. We've spoken about my role in transplantation, getting to know the patient, the actual role of transplantation itself in the treatment of certain blood disorders. The next thing I go through with the patients is what is really needed for a transplant to be successful. 
There are three main components. So the first thing is, does the patient have a disease that has an evidence base that transplant will be successful in treating? The second thing is making an assessment of the patient and how well they are in terms of how well they are to receive the chemotherapy, whether they're at high risk of any potential complications as a result of transplantation. And the last thing is identifying a suitable donor who can provide the stem cells. We generally match stem cells by something called HLA. It's a protein that is really fundamental in the immune system and allows immune cells to tell what belongs to the body and what doesn't. So the closer we can match a donor to a patient's HLA, generally the better the outcomes in the transplantation, the more likely the donor cells are to grow and the lower risk of a complication I'll I'll address later called graft-versus-host disease. There is a hierarchy in terms of donor sources that we seek out. So our first preference is a matched full sibling as they tend to have the closest HLA type to the recipient. Then we start evaluating something called donor registries, which are large registries where people have voluntarily signed up to be bone marrow transplant donors. These are both national and international. The next most ideal transplant candidate is something called a haploidentical match, and that's someone who shares half your HLA information. And that tends to be, siblings can be half match, haploidentical match, and so can parents or children. Another stem cell source It's fallen out of favour in the last couple of years, but still a potential option is something called cord blood. So this is blood taken from umbilical cords, from parents who've donated placental cord blood after they've had a delivery of a child. And often we seek their presence in in blood banks and we can assess whether um, there's any potential match with cord blood. But there are a few complications associated with this type of graft. And as a result, they've fallen out of favour in terms of us preferencing something, the, the haploidentical transplantation. In terms of patients who have undergone a lot of you know, previous treatment, comparing to the patient who was not completely naive to you know, any treatment prior, do you notice any difference when you actually see them for the first time? Part of the initial consultation is just setting up the expectations of what the procedure will actually involve. So as I said before, our most common indication for transplantation is acute myeloid leukemia. Most of the patients who have been referred to us have undergone some form of chemotherapy prior to us assessing them. The pattern of that chemotherapy is very similar to what patients can expect from a transplant. So often they're the most well-informed of at least what the inpatient stay will look like. I should have probably mentioned something about that before, but essentially what the backbone of the the admission to hospital for a transplant is essentially patients receive some chemotherapy and then they'll receive their stem cells. As a result of that chemotherapy, their blood counts will be very low and they'll be stuck in hospital until they recover. So that's about 21 days to 30 days. So people who have had treatment for acute leukemia, they're quite familiar with this process because it's very similar to what they've experienced prior. But patients who, they have expectations on how they're going to feel through it as well. Whereas patients who have not received any chemotherapy, that whole process, the admission, the effects of the chemotherapy can be quite confronting, especially in these naive patients. It can be quite shocking that first dose of chemotherapy Mm. for people, say with MDS, before they have their transplant. MDS is a great example. Often the patients haven't received high doses of chemotherapy and, and yeah, it's, it's quite confronting mm. um, how, how sick they can become as a result of it. So do you find in those patients that 
physically and the psychological expectations can be different or what preparations in terms of physical and psychological do you give them when they come into transplant? I try and be as frank as I can, but still not trying to put them off the procedures so far because in, in, in quite a lot of cases, this is probably the best chance the patient has at, at a cure of their underlying disease, but they need to know the risks going into it. it. might be helpful just describing at least the first 30 days what kind of things you can expect to happen. So as I said before, you receive the chemotherapy and patients can get quite nauseated as a result of that. And as your blood counts start to drop and this specific blood cell that we always a little bit worried about called the neutrophils and they're kind of the first line in protecting patients against infection. Once they start to drop, people notice that they get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, which kind of reflects inflammation in the gut, which occurs as a result of both the neutrophils being low and some toxicity from the chemotherapy. It's very common for people to get infections and that's something we call febrile neutropenia. So it's, it's fever in the presence of neutropenia. And part of the reason why we keep people in hospital is because it's, it's, it is regarded as a medical emergency and we need to give antibiotics quite quickly. So patients receive antibiotics as soon as they have this occur. They may get pain in their tummy as well from the inflammation in their gut. And sometimes patients need to be fed through a drip rather than through their mouth to support their nutrition because the gut is so inflamed it can't work. They may accumulate a bit of fluid because there's a lot of medications that need to be given intravenously. What I tell patients during that time is the thing that will eventually make things better is when the neutrophil count recovers. But our aim in this kind of period is just to make them feel better. So to control their nausea, control their pain, try and support their nutrition as best we can. So roughly that that period lasts about, say, two weeks. And then as the neutrophil count starts to recover, patients notice they feel better. The fevers come down. The gut starts to heal. They're able to eat, have tablets and and then leave hospital. And I think on the ward, as from a nursing perspective, we are quite well trained in identifying these sorts of symptoms and there are a lot of medications and supportive care available to try and alleviate what patients are going through. I kind of try and tell people it's, it's one of the most intense medical treatments that you, can, that you can experience in the entire world, but the payoff is a cure. You're surrounded by professionals and people who are highly trained to help support you through this. Yeah, that's, that, I completely agree with that, Alex. I think I, another thing that's really interesting, I don't know if you agree with me, is how, how much we build up day zero and cell day. And you've seen the transplant being given, obviously. It's such a small bag for such a big and important product and, and treatment. Yeah, so it's, it's good that you brought that up, Alex. So, yeah, we, we do build that up because it's kind of a and I know a lot of patients have used the term it's my it's it's a new beginning for me a birthday a birthday yeah yeah, yeah. so and but but it's interesting because a lot of people don't actually understand how the cells are, are given and, and exactly as you pointed out it's it's essentially just a, a the same as a blood transfusion mm, platelets even it's yeah, faster yeah exactly and and I think a lot of people have this impression that we try and put the cells directly into the the bone marrow in in the back of the hip and and um it does sound like it should be a surgical procedure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it, many people have asked, and their you know relatives or friends 
or and ask you know when are you having this surgery and mm. you know patients say I I don't know uh, on day zero but you know we really need to tell the patient it's it's not it's not a surgery you it looks simple there's a lot of signs behind it that will make it work yeah and and that's that's another thing I I try to talk about in my first consultation is just emphasizing that it's actually the same as a blood transfusion the stem cells are given in a bag through the vein and and they make their way to the bone marrow themselves they're quite clever so that's another thing that uh, is, is frequently asked. Yeah, and it's yeah. just – it's like the first day of the rest of your life. Yes. It's, yeah. It can be – I try and make it a bit exciting. I really like giving stem cells. Yeah. <laughs> you have been working on a bone marrow transplant ward for a long time and yep. you've seen many patients um, that have gone through the procedure and you've educated a lot of patients both pre and during transplantation. Do you think they are well prepared coming into transplant or and or well prepared when they you know leave the inpatient ward you know with within the short period of time three to four weeks? Yeah, I think essentially a transplant isn't a cookie cutter procedure, and every transplant is essentially tailored both to the patient, their disease, any of the other medical problems that might be part of them. So everyone's different, and I think trying to compare patients experiences to other patients in the in the ward is is just you know everyone reacts differently and has a different experience of the chemo and the transplant some people come to this after lots of relapse and conditioning and other people are treatment naive are they prepared i think hopefully the podcast will help them Ming. <laughs> but always ask questions ask your nurses ask your social workers ask your doctors and yeah i think you just have to take it one step at a time one piece of advice I would say is to eat as as much as you as much as you can as you can tolerate it. Take your tablets, bring something to the ward to help you keep intellectually stimulated because it's a long month yeah. and it can get yeah. quite monotonous. Mm. And the same faces and don't be embarrassed because the nurses have seen it all before, multiple times. <laughs> Nothing is too shocking. What would you say to the listeners out there in terms of preparing them of supporting the patient through the bone marrow transplant? It's very helpful if a carer can come to the initial consultation, both to kind of inform their expectations of what the transplant may involve, but also because it's 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 easier when you've got two people trying to take in the, the enormous amount of information that you know I'm trying to convey. And often it's it's helpful to have more than one meeting, which I try and do and go through sort of what I did at the, the top of the podcast. The critical thing is we just want to know, give them an expectation of how sick the patient may be, even when they leave hospital, because there are, there are a number of things that can still occur, namely infections are still pretty high risk. There's a lot of medication to get through, that which makes people very nauseated and generally just not feeling great. So the critical things we always say to carers is the, the main thing that we want them to recognise is if there's any concern in terms of the patient's well-being or they're developing a fever, that's when they can help us out the most in recognising when patients are sick when they leave hospital. A, a major challenge at the moment with the COVID situation is that carers are not thinly being present as they, they used to be and sometimes they can 
be in a shock when you know they they don't see you know their their loved ones for some time and then you know when they first see them and they they know very well yes i think the the main thing to get across that that we've i, th- I think we've all noticed is in the vast majority of patients it people are not the best definitely not 100 percent for the first 100 days but as soon as we start winding back some of the medication and they and they kind of get less dependent on the hospital we're seeing them less frequently they definitely improve a lot and and you know we've seen a, a lot of patients years down the track who come back to their baseline so i guess the the main thing to emphasize for the patients is that there's a light out of the tunnel and, and you're the reason why you're undergoing such a a procedure that makes you feel so unwell and has a lot of implications is because of the long-term benefit it's good to hear yeah Thanks for listening and hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have any queries for the Straight and Marrow team or suggestions for future shows, please email us at straightandandmarrow at gmail.com. Although our team are experienced healthcare providers, we are unable to give individual medical advice. If you have a medical query, please speak to your treating team. See you next time at the Straight and Marrow and don't forget